Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning and we bow before you. We humble ourselves under your holy word and we pray that you'd speak to us, that Holy Spirit, you would meet with us as we uh, encounter your word together. Help us to renew our minds as we study it together this morning, that you would speak to us, just meet with it, each one of us, wherever we're at. So bless us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I had a moment in my life that some might describe as a kind of discovering and enter, entering into the truth. Personally, I have to thank for this truly life-changing and transforming event uh, where I moved from vaguely knowing about something to actually experiencing it for myself was none other than Ryan. And what was this great momentous discovery that I made? What was this moment of transformation that I experienced? It was discovering coffee. <laughs> and none of your instant nonsense in a jar. This is the proper real roasted bean stuff, preferably uh, Ethiopian or uh, Colombian. Real, real good stuff. Now, up until that point, I knew about coffee and even tasted some of the instant stuff. But it wasn't until I tasted the real thing, the real coffee, genuine things, that my experience was complete. And, you know, there are some times, there are some moments in our lives when we move from knowing about something, having a kind of general vague co- uh, concept of something, to actually moving into a place where we've actually experienced the thing in our own life, where we've actually experienced the reality of something. And in our reading that Hannah read for us, we, we saw that how Paul, on a spiritual level, did for some first century Jews what Ryan did for me with regards to coffee. A little bit more important, though, than coffee. He helped them, Paul helped them to move from a deficient understanding about Jesus, about faith in Jesus, about baptism, about the Holy Spirit, into a place where they uh, put their faith and trust in Jesus, where they were baptized as believers, and where they were filled with the Holy Spirit. These men lived in Ephesus, which was a city in what is now modern-day Turkey. It's in the, in the west of Turkey. It has a population of over 300,000. If you want to know more about Ephesus, go and chat with Paul. He's been there. Uh, some fantastic uh, things to see there. There's an amphitheater which could seat 25,000 people, an enormous big stadium. People there worship the goddess Artemis, and we're going to look at that in, a, in the next couple of weeks a little bit. And the, the temple that they worshipped in, this is the ruins of it, was the largest building in the entire Greek world. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. This was a, a, a phenomenal, massive, big building. But as well as all these things going on, there was a large colony of Jews that lived in Ephesus. And they met in their synagogue, and on Paul's first visit, which we looked at last week, Paul's first visit to, to Ephesus, he went into the synagogue, and he began to tell them about Jesus being the Messiah, the one that had been promised, God's chosen king. And Acts 18, and you've got a, an outline for you on your chair, it's got the bulletin on one side, the outline on the other side, and there's some, uh, some things to fill in if you want, there's pens in the front in the seat of you, and also all the verses will be up on the screen. And in Acts 18, 19 to 21, it says this, They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul had been to Ephesus. He'd gone to the synagogue, tried to tell them about Jesus. And it seems that they were very interested. They, they wanted him to tell them more. They wanted him to stay. And Paul says, look, it's not the right time at the moment. But if it's God's will, I'll come back and we'll talk some more about Jesus. And so Paul left Priscilla and Aquila behind in Ephesus, presumably attending the synagogue at that, at that, at that time. He went back to Jerusalem and then he went back up to Antioch, which is a now in kind of what is modern-day Syria, uh, and that was where his home church was, and he went back up there. 
And then we read these words in Acts 19, verses 1 and 2, the first two verses of our passage today. And this is Paul setting out on his third great missionary journey. And it says this, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So this is Paul's third and his final great missionary journey, probably in about 53 AD. And his first, mes- his first main destination after leaving Antioch was to go to Ephesus in the province of Asia, which actually is nothing like Asia today. It was a Roman province, and it roughly equates to sort of Western Turkey today. And when he got there, he comes across these 12 men who Luke describes as disciples. Now, they are probably men who had heard uh, one of John the Baptist's followers, probably not John the Baptist himself, probably one of John the Baptist's followers preaching. But what they'd heard and what they'd been taught by this individual wasn't the full story. It wasn't everything that John had been teaching. They'd only heard part of what John had been teaching because John had been sent to prepare the way for Jesus. His job was to call people to get themselves ready for the Messiah, for the Christ, God's chosen king who was coming for Jesus. In other words, his job was to call them to repent, to to turn away from their sin and to make themselves ready for what God was about to do in sending Jesus. And then John baptized those who responded. They went down underwater and then they came back up out of water. Uh, a, A picture, a symbol that their old life was over and they were starting a new life as they were ready and getting ready for the coming of the Messiah for Jesus. So these 12 men were, were faithful Jews, probably, who had repented of their sins. They had responded to, to the message that John was preaching, but they'd only, responded to the, they'd only responded to this whole concept of repentance. It seems they didn't even know about Jesus. They'd only been told what God was going to do, or, or to prepare for what God was going to do. They hadn't been told all the detail. They'd never been told about Jesus, that Jesus had come, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, God's chosen king. They hadn't been told, they didn't know that Jesus had died for their sins, they didn't, need, they didn't know that Jesus had been buried, that he'd risen, that he'd ascended back to heaven, and that he'd sent the Holy Spirit. And all those who trusted in Jesus could be filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered. And and, and this was all new to them. They just didn't know this. They hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 3, Paul says this. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is, in Jesus. And so Paul was able to clarify. All we're getting here is the kind of edited highlights of the discussion, probably much more was said. And, and so Paul was able to clarify that they had only been baptized as a sign of their repentance and their desire to be ready for whatever it was that God was about to do. But they didn't know that John had also preached about Jesus, that John had uh, preached about Jesus, that they didn't know what Jesus had actually done. They weren't aware of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit had been sent from heaven by Jesus when he had ascended to heaven. They weren't aware that this new life that the Holy Spirit can bring. So in verse 5, we read this. On hearing this, on this kind of explanation that Paul gives, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that Paul had explained that, that John's message was all about getting ready for Jesus and that Jesus had now come, that he died, that he'd uh, risen again, that he descended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit, they were able to respond to that. They'd been seeking God. They had repented of their sins. They were ready for what, was gonna, for what God was going to do. But they'd never actually put their faith in Jesus. They were ready for Jesus. They didn't know quite what they were ready for. They were ready. They'd responded to part of John's message. But they hadn't responded to Jesus because they hadn't heard about Jesus. 
They'd never trusted in Jesus for forgiveness. They hadn't been made right with God for eternal life because they'd never been told about Jesus and what he'd done for them. And once Paul put this right, they responded. And they accepted Jesus as their Messiah, as, as God's chosen king, and as their Lord and God. And they gave their lives to him. And they publicly demonstrated that by placing their faith in him and being baptized in the name of Jesus as believers in Jesus. These men were a little bit like me with my coffee. Their knowledge, their experience was a little bit, and suddenly they moved into a kind of full experience and a full knowledge and a full reality of what was going on there. Their knowledge was incomplete. They needed to know about Jesus, and then they needed to respond to that additional knowledge. You know, there are lots of people in the world today, and maybe you're one of them here this morning. It's it's possible that you might be one of them here today because it's it's possible to believe in God. It's possible to be very sincere, to live a good life, to to refrain from sinning, to be religious, I guess we would say. Uh, Wanting to go to heaven, wanting to be right with God, hoping that, you know, if if I refrain from sin, if I live a good life, if I do a good job, if I'm religious, that I might get to heaven. But it's possible to do all of that and never actually get around to placing your faith and your trust in Jesus for forgiveness and to be made right with God. Repentance, turning away from sin, is absolutely necessary to be made right with God and for forgiveness, to have eternal life, to go to heaven. But we need more than just repentance. See, we need to have faith in the Lord Jesus. These people, they got the repentance right. They, were, they, were, they repented to be ready for what God was going to do, but they didn't know about Jesus. And it's possible for us, you know, this morning to be really trying to live a good life, not doing wrong things, being very religious, but actually not getting around to putting our faith and trust in Jesus. In other words, to stop trying to rely on, on our good abilities and our good works and instead rely on who Jesus is and what he's done. To trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us in dying for us on the cross. To, to, to accept that I need to receive him as my Lord and Savior. And to have his forgiveness, to be made right with God and, and to go to heaven. And if we don't do that, if we don't, we, we might be living really good lives, might be kind of repenting as it were, but never actually getting around to putting our faith in Jesus. And if we can have all the good works that we want, but without faith in Jesus, that isn't enough. We need to have faith in Jesus. Paul and Victoria told us last week about a lady that he and, uh, that he and Victoria talked to in Newcastle who attended church all her life and didn't know that Jesus had died for her and that she could have her sins forgiven. Tragic, isn't it? Outrageous, really. Someone could go to church all their life and didn't know. So she was very religious. She was a bit like these men, but didn't know that she needed to put her faith in Jesus and that she could actually have that assurance of her sins forgiven. And it may be that you're in that position today that you're living an upright life, you're trying to please God, but you've never actually put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Then if that's you this morning, then I'd like to challenge you to do that, to take that step to place your faith in who Jesus is, not just living a good life. That's good, but it's not good enough. We need to put our faith in Jesus in what he's done so that we can have that fantastic assurance that our sins are forgiven, that we've been made right with God, and that we've got eternal life. And and if that's something that you want to do today, then come and chat with me afterwards or with Keith. We'll be delighted to talk with, or or Paul, delighted to talk more with you. Um, afterwards but you know it's also possible for us or for people to place their faith in Jesus to save them to make them right with God to be professing faith in Jesus and yet to never really repent of our sins people profess faith in Jesus but they've yet to really turn away from sin 
in their life. Some people that I talk to, you know, they like the idea of, of going to heaven, of having their sins forgiven, of being right with God, and, and they embrace that concept, but never seem to really quite get around to repenting of sin and, and, and doing the other bit that's necessary of repentance. I wonder if that's you today. Someone who's professing faith in Jesus, but you're not actually really repentant. You can't have one without the other. Both are necessary. We need to be repentant and have faith. But professing faith isn't enough. Professing faith in Jesus will also mean that we need to turn away from our sin. This morning I want to challenge you to repent. If there are, if there are areas of your life that are, that are sinful, that you know that you need to get right with God, can I challenge you, encourage you to repent, to turn away from them? Because unless you're also truly repentant, then there is no forgiveness. There is no return, eternal life. We need both repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, having had their knowledge made complete, these men put their faith in Jesus. They were baptized, and then something strange happens. Look at verse 6. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Why did this happen? Why did Paul do this? What's going on here? There are many, many other people throughout the book of Acts who became Christians who this didn't happen to. 3,000 in Acts 2, 2,000 in Acts 4, the Ethiopian in Acts 8, Lydia, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. This didn't happen to them. So so, so why did it happen to this group? And, And why does Luke write about this? And I guess the question is, is this meant to happen to us today? Are we meant to have some subsequent experience, some miraculous experience of the Holy Spirit where we then speak in tongues and prophesy after we trust in Jesus, either immediately after or at some point in the future? Something similar to this happens at other unique moments throughout the uh, book of Acts. And I think the reason this happened and the reason that Luke records this for us is because this is a unique group of people in the history of God's dealings with humanity. And it's a unique point in history. So it's a unique group of people and it's a unique point in history. Something similar happens at other unique moments in the book of Acts. It happens when the gospel is first preached to the Jews. It happens when the gospel is first accepted by the Samaritans, and it happens when the gospel is first accepted by the Gentiles. And in each of those occasions, we see visible evidence of the Holy Spirit coming on people. And what happened to them and to these 12 men, I believe, was specifically related to the identity and to the need of these men. And they were those who, in some way, were influenced by John the Baptist's teaching. But they were then brought collectively into the new community established by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And in the history of God's dealings with humanity, they were a transitional group, a kind of one-off little group whose full incorporation into the church needed to be demonstrated by this visible proof, this visible evidence. And the evidence that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that they had become part of God's people, part of God's family and had been accepted and, and made new people, was that they were able to speak in tongues Uh, In other words, they were able to praise God in languages they hadn't learned, and they were able to prophesy. They were able to reveal things about each other, about God to to each other, and pass on specific truths about God to each other and to those around them. Now, some people people today teach that this is meant to happen to us, that there should be some subsequent miraculous event that happens in our lives, that, 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 that after trusting in Jesus, we should then actively seek a secondary experience where we to perhaps miraculously encounter the Holy Spirit and part of the proof of that will be that we speak in tongues and that we uh, prophesy. Well, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches and that's not the uh, position that we would take as elders. I I think this is a one-off situation 
where because of the unique identity of these men, and as we've already seen, there were many other people in the book of Acts who trusted in Jesus, and this didn't happen to them. They perhaps were more like uh, many people today who trust in Jesus, and that was that. Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, when Paul talks about baptizing the spirit, he's not been talking about water baptism uh, as a sign of trusting in Jesus. Baptism is, a, is another metaphor uh, for the whole idea of being submerged and immersed and just overwhelmed and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So the word baptizing the Holy Spirit or to be filled with the Holy Spirit means the same thing. And the Bible uses these two terms interchangeably. So Paul says here, look, we were all baptized or we were, we were all filled by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So in other words, every Christian has been baptized, uh, has been filled with the spirit when they trusted in Jesus. It is not something that happens after we're saved to those who seek some kind of special ex- extra experience of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in, in, in Romans 8 verse 9, Paul says this, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. In other words, if a person hasn't been filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, then they're not a Christian. So if a person has trusted in Jesus and has been saved, then they have been filled with, they have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It, it means the same thing. Because, in fact, we can't come to faith in Christ without the Holy Spirit producing that, 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 that supernatural work within us. It's what happens at conversion. So the Bible teaches that we are all filled, we are all baptized in the Spirit at conversion. What we're reading about here in Acts 19 is a, is a unique, it's a kind of one-off event in the book of Acts and in the history of God's people. So this morning, if, if you would profess faith in Christ, if, if, if you've repented of your sins, you're, you're putting your faith in Jesus to save you, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You don't need to seek some secondary experience. However, we are still told to actively seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need to differentiate two things. Baptism, being filled with the Spirit at conversion, which brings transforming life, is different from going on and being filled on a daily basis with the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Galatians 5.18. He says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the Greek, it literally reads, be being filled. In other words, just continuously be being filled. This is something which is meant to be an ongoing experience. It's an ongoing choice that we make to seek the Holy Spirit's filling and empowering and control in our lives. So we're filled or or baptized with the Holy Spirit when we're saved, but then we should be continuously seeking to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and control us and, and live in every area of our lives. And that's a choice that we have to continuously make and, and make kind of on, a, on a daily basis to repent of any sins that we're aware of. As soon as we're aware of, uh, of sin, to confess it, to repent, to turn away from it, and to turn it in, instead to faith to, uh, in faith to God and seek the Holy Spirit to fill us, to control us, to open every area of our life so that we're not just kind of a Sunday Christian, but that actually every aspect of our life is filled with and, and controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's a bit like being a balloon. We are filled with air, and so we expand. And that's a little bit like when we come to faith. The Holy Spirit fills us, and so we expand. We change. We become new people. But we can be filled with much more air. A balloon can go from being you know, slightly inflated to being significantly inflated. And that's a kind of a picture with us, too. 
We're all filled with the Holy Spirit when we're saved, but we can, be, uh, we can go on to be filled even more through our Christian life, and we should be, because we should grow. You know, a Christian who just stays the same, questionable really whether they've actually become a Christian. We should be seeing growth. We're not always, it's not always going to be upwards and to the right, but we should be seeing uh, a, a gradual development. And sometimes there might be some really massive uh, jumps when we really grow and make significant growth in our Christian life. But the Holy Spirit fills us, and we can and we should be filled more and more with the Holy Spirit so that we grow and that we mature as Christians, becoming more and more like Jesus. And the evidence of that happening is that we demonstrate what the Bible calls the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, uh, when the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, what it means is the evidence. Just as a tree produces fruit, if you want to know that tree is really an apple tree, it will produce apples. If you want to know if a Christian is really a Christian, is filled with the Holy Spirit, then they will begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul defines what that fruit looks like. He says this in Galatians 5. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the defining characteristics of what it looks like to be a Spirit-filled Christian. So if we're choosing to surrender to the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, and our lives are being filled with him, then we will be people who are marked out by by love, by joy, by peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and and, and self-control. So... The action that we need to take is that we need to make that daily choice to repent of our sins and surrender our lives to the Holy Spirit. Write that on your outline. We need to make that daily choice. And it's not something that God will do for us. It's about us. The Holy Spirit will prompt us and encourage us. And it's about us responding as we read the Bible, as we listen to the Holy Spirit, uh, as as we encounter other believers, as we come to church, in worship, in the Bible, whatever it might be that we make those choices to turn away when we're aware of sin in our lives, to turn away from them, to clean our lives out and continuously be being filled with the Holy Spirit so that we go on to be filled with his presence and with his power. Having said that, many Christians do experience uh, similar things to these 12 men in Ephesus. I've got many friends who have experienced something similar to these Twelve men. They have miraculous encounters with the Holy Spirit, and many are also enabled to speak in tongues and prophesy. So I want to be clear as a church that we do believe that people can and do have miraculous encounters with the Holy Spirit, either at their conversion or at some point in their life. God does do that, and we, and, and we do believe that. Where perhaps people encounter God in a really tangible way, out of the ordinary, not perhaps the, the kind of everyday thing that we would expect. But what we're saying is that this isn't something that we should all expect to have, and it's not the normal course of events. This isn't something that we kind of should expect every church service to, to have some miraculous experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, we, the, the experience of the Holy Spirit, the proof of that day by day in our lives is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. But we may have, we may experience miraculous experiences of the Holy Spirit. And we also believe as a church that that God gives people what the Bible calls spiritual gifts. In other words, special abilities that the Holy Spirit gives them on or after their conversion. Some of these gifts might be everyday things such as administration or or teaching. But some are miraculous, what we sometimes call the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Things like speaking in tongues and and, and prophesying. And again, I want to be clear that, that we do believe, we're not a church that believes these gifts have ceased. We do believe that all of the gifts in the New Testament, including tongues and prophecy, are for today. And the Holy Spirit gives these gifts to some people. However, not every Christian will have every gift. Not every Christian will have these gifts of tongues and prophecy. 
Every Christian in the Bible says has at least one gift. Some Christians will have many more. But we won't all speak in tongues. We won't all prophesy. Paul says that. He says, do all speak in tongues? Question mark. Clearly, no. Do, are, are all evangelists? Are all prophets? No. And Paul, talking about spiritual gifts, writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, all these are the work of the one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So the spiritual gifts, these abilities, whether they're miraculous or, or might seem fairly mundane things, are not given to us based upon how good we are or how pleasing we are to God. We don't earn these things. The Bible calls them gifts of grace. That, that's what the word charismatic actually means. It, charisma uh, or, or charis is, is grace, and, and these are gifts of grace, special abilities that God gives us, not depending whether we're good people or we're, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a much better Christian than Keith is, so therefore I get more gifts. That's not how it works. I mean, I am a better Christian than Keith, but, but no, I'm, but... <laughs> But I don't get any more gifts based upon that. That's not how it works. These are given. They are not earned. They are given. They are gifts of grace. That's what charismatic means. A a, a Christian can be very gifted and yet not particularly godly. Equally, a Christian can be very godly and not have many gifts. The two things are not uh, the same thing. They They are different. And the evidence of being filled with the Spirit isn't whether or not we can speak in tongues or prophesy... The evidence of being filled with the Spirit is whether or not we're displaying love and joy and peace and patience. The gifts of the Spirit are not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit may give someone the gift of the Spirit, but they may not be actually a very godly person. The two things are not directly related. And if the Holy Spirit does give someone the ability to speak in tongues and to prophesy, I don't have those abilities, I don't have those gifts, but if somebody does, if the Holy Spirit does, then we need to make sure that we we carry those gifts out and we use them in a biblical way. The Bible is very clear on how that should happen. 1 Corinthians 14, we've got some really clear directions about how these gifts should be used, particularly tongues and prophecy. And Paul writes this, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, that, that's uh, the kind of shorthand Bible for uh, uh, an unlearned language that we've not learned ourselves. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And then he goes on to say, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit may be at work in a church, but it won't cause mayhem, for it to be, or, or it shouldn't, because it should be controlled and should be done in an orderly and a fitting way, because God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So these 12 men are not a pattern for what we should expect for ourselves. So when you became a Christian, if you think, well, I, you know, Keith or Andy or Paul didn't, or Ryan didn't, didn't lay hands on me and, and I, didn't, I didn't have these amazing gifts, this didn't happen to me, am I somehow different to these men? No, not at all. These were a unique group of men, a unique point in history, and that's not meant to be a pattern for us to expect today. What happened to them was to demonstrate that God was bringing them into his family, the church. And if you trusted in Jesus this morning, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized in the Spirit. However, we do need to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it may well be that we do have miraculous encounters with the Holy Spirit. And that's great. So long as we don't end up with a two-tier Christianity, where we think that perhaps those who have those experiences are superior to those who don't, or that those who haven't had those experiences feel inferior. And, and at any time if we drift into that or begin to teach that, then we're completely missing the point. Some people say, you know, that, that those who speak in tongues or, or, or can prophesy are, are seen as being more godly than those who can't. That is completely not the case in the New Testament. Godliness is seen in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. 
The gifts of the Spirit are given as he determines. The two things are not the same. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts, special abilities to every Christian. They include uh, helping, they include encouraging, they include financially giving, they include faith, they include uh, hospitality. They also include these miraculous things such as tongues and prophesying. Not every Christian has the same gifts. And you may only have one gift, but that doesn't make you inferior to someone who has ten gifts. And if you can't speak in tongues, that doesn't mean you're inferior to someone who can or, and, and vice versa. You're, the gifts that God has given to you are those he has given just as he has determined in his wisdom. And the challenge for us is to say, worry less about the, my, my spiritual gifts, although we should desire them and we should use them and we should make sure we are using them, putting them to, to serve God and to serve others. But actually, my fo- our focus needs to be on the fruit of the Spirit. Because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I, if, if I speak in the tongues of angels but I don't have love, I'm just like a, a, a resounding symbol. So we can, have all, we can have all the miraculous gifts, we can be the most impressive person on the planet, but if we don't have love, then it's all empty. These are gifts that God gives as he decides, not because we've earned them or deserved them. And if we are given miraculous gifts such as tongues and, and, and prophecy, then we must make sure that we use them in accordance with the directions the Bible gives to us. And if you want to chat with me about that afterwards, if, if that's different to what you've been told before or, or that's new to you, then by all means come and chat with me. I'd be delighted to do that. Now Paul was clearly someone who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this was evident in his life and his work because part of the result of the, the Holy Spirit filling a person is power and a renewed desire to tell others about Jesus. When the Holy Spirit came upon people throughout Acts, in fact, the majority of cases where Acts says, and somebody was filled with the Spirit, they didn't prophesy or speak in tongues. They then, it says, spoke the word of God boldly, and they preached and proclaimed the gospel. That was the result of being filled with the Spirit in the vast majority of cases in Acts. And this is what happens here with Paul. After he'd, after he'd encountered these men and he'd led them to faith in Christ, we read that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul spoke boldly about Jesus. And this was the beginnings, the kind of uh, beginnings of a church plant. There were Pris- Priscilla and Aquila were there in the synagogue. There's these 12 men and presumably their families and, and, and a kind of wider group of people. And this is the beginnings of the church in Ephesus. And, of course, later Paul would write a letter to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. But about three months down the road, things began to change. Verse 9 says, But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is, again, a shorthand way in which Luke, in, in Acts, refers to the Christian faith. People were described as followers of the way. They publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, that's these 12 12 men and their kind of wider households, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And there's a picture there of the ruins of the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And Paul had uh, discussions there daily in that lecture hall for about two years. That would have been fantastic, wouldn't it? Imagine Paul down the road in the theater every day, you know, 12 to 2, Paul's there preaching. Fantastic. Let's all go. That would be great, wouldn't it? Paul would have made tents in the morning to, to, to finance himself. And then when the hall was empty around about siesta time, 12 till about 2, when, when everybody else was trying to get out of the heat, Paul would teach about Jesus. And people would come and they would give up their siestas and they'd come to find out about more. And, sa- and says, look, this went on for two years. 
so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And again, this is, the, this is kind of Western Turkey. It's not to be confused with Asia, the continent. So Paul taught every day. And as he did that, presumably many, many more people became Christians, trusted in Jesus, were, were filled with the Holy Spirit, were baptized, and then spread out right across this province of Asia, Western Turkey, and began new communities of Christians uh, all over. And of course, uh, throughout the New Testament, we see these, these churches referred to uh, and uh, letters that were written to them. And they planted these new churches. And you know, I guess the point of this is that if we're going to tell people about Jesus, then we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Write that down. If if we're going to tell people about Jesus, if we're going to go out, whether it's our friends at work, whether we're going to go on the streets, whether we're going to go to France, whatever it might be, if we're going to tell people about Jesus, then we need to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Our words are just words. And I don't know about you, but when I'm trying to tell people about Jesus, I often stutter and stammer. I'm not very good at it. I have to work really hard at trying to talk to people on a one-on-one about Jesus. But if we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, that daily uh, crucifying ourselves, putting ourselves to death, uh, turning away from sin, uh, just seeking to be filled and controlled, filled to overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit, then we don't need to rely on how good we are about talking to Jesus because we can rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, I'm sure that Paul was wise and persuasive. He must have been a phenomenal orator to, to, to listen to, and his teachings are fantastic. But Paul says, look, in other words, I wasn't relying on my speaking ability. Actually, what changed your life was the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through me. And I guess we can all... Ref- Think of moments like that, can't we, where we've kind of stumbled our way through trying to share the good news about Jesus with somebody and someone's become a Christian or, or someone has turned to Christ in a service and you think, well, I thought the preacher was really dull. And you probably think that most weeks, when it's, you know, but, but that person became a Christian. So clearly it, it wasn't about their oratory skills, it was the Holy Spirit was at work. Now, how do we get the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, we're filled and baptized with the Spirit when we trust in Jesus. But we need to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that might be experienced. We may have kind of dramatic moments in our life where we really experience God in a tangible way. But more likely and more usually, it's just in those quiet moments with God where Jesus says, you know, you go into your room, you shut your door, and you are alone with God and in prayer. And as we read the Bible, as we repent of our known sins, as we daily surrender to God and say, I want you to be in charge of my life today. I want you to live and reign in me. And as we pray, bring our lives to him, and surrender ourselves to him in repentance so that he rules and reigns in our lives, then the Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us. And regardless of the way it happens, the important thing is that that we are continuously seeking more of God in our lives, that we're not content to stand still, not content with where I'm at, but but, but pushing forwards, always wanting to be closer to God, to be more like Jesus, to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. As we finish today, I wonder what God is saying to you this morning. Maybe you're someone who has been living a very religious life, like these people, like these 12 men were, but you've never actually put your faith in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. Maybe you're someone who has put your faith in Jesus, you're professing faith, but actually there's still some significant areas in your life that you need to turn away from, some sin that needs repenting of, that you need to deal with. A stand that you need to take in your life and say, if I'm going to profess faith, then my life looks, needs to look very different. Maybe this morning you need and want to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. Now's the time to bring your life to God this morning. 
and surrender it again afresh to him. And maybe there's, there's things in your life you know that you've been wandering from God. You've allowed stuff to come in and uh, cloud your life and, and things have obscured your, your focus and your devotion to Jesus. And it's a moment this morning just to take a stand and, and, and to push those stuff out. Maybe not bad stuff, maybe just stuff that fills our lives. And once again to kind of sweep our lives clean. Maybe there is some bad stuff. Maybe there's some sin that we need to deal with, that we need to repent of. And once again give the temple of the Holy Spirit, our lives, our bodies, that, that, that real clean place for the Holy Spirit to live. Let's just take a moment, just bow our heads and be quiet before God and, and respond to whatever we believe God is saying to us this morning. I don't know what God is saying to you. The Holy Spirit does, and maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And, and, and whatever you sense the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning, then now's a chance, an opportunity, just in, the, in a few moments of quiet, just to come to him and to do business with God, whether stepping out and really grasping salvation for the first time in faith or, or in repentance or in, in just asking the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh.